are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of our conversation with Marsha Dixon, co-founder of the Better Buying Institute. And in case you missed it, here's some quick context we covered in part one. Better Buying asks suppliers to anonymously review the brands they work for, asking for information on a range of topics from how well the brand does their planning and forecasting to price negotiations to payment terms and beyond. Better Buying uses that data to put forward anonymized reports on the state of purchasing practices in the fashion industry and to try and improve partnerships across the supply chain. In part one, we covered why Masha founded Better Buying and how she became an advocate of purchasing practices in the first place. She also shared how the sustainable fashion narrative has changed since she first started working in the industry, and how Better Buying data has helped shape that narrative. And finally, we covered what she thinks the role of Better Buying data is in buyer accountability. In this episode, part two of the conversation. We get into what it would take to get suppliers to open up and share their perspectives more freely, and the win-win opportunities that would come alongside that, both for suppliers and for brands. But equally, we get into the limits of mutual understanding and what else Marsha thinks might need to happen in order for the industry to really see change. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So I think across the industry, there's recognition. To different degrees, but there's some kind of recognition that tackling these huge problems that we have in front of us is going to take some collaboration and working together. And I think that you know, in the wake of COVID, there's more interest also in supplier perspectives on what sustainable sustainability in the fashion industry requires. And um, I've had a lot of people. In the last six months, come to me and say, "Well, we want more supplier perspectives. Like, how can we get more supplier perspectives?" And I'm always just kind of like, "Well, you have to have a value proposition for the supplier." And so I'm curious how you've kind of and and often just as context for that, my feeling has been that they didn't really have a strong value proposition for the supplier. Like, what was in it for the supplier to share their ideas, to share their perspectives, to share their voice, other than quite a lot of risk?、Um, and also, maybe even if they said they were willing to speak, like I can think of a lot of situations that I was even in personally where maybe I. I would have said some things, but I wouldn't have disclosed everything because it would have just been used against me during a price negotiation or you know whatever.、Um, and so I'm curious, what do you you know how has Better Buying tackled this, and what do you think it would take to get information from suppliers flowing more freely?、Hmm. Yeah, you know, so.、Um, <laughs> 
I mean, foundation for what we're doing is trying to elevate that supplier voice and to give that safe space because exactly those concerns are ones we heard. Suppliers want their voices to be heard, but you're exactly right. They're worried about retaliation and damaging the commercial relationships with their customers. And that's why our third-party approach to data collection that guarantees anonymity is so important. Um, but, you know, as brands increasingly acknowledge their shortcomings, which I think they are recognizing more and more with the help of a lot of others, but they're becoming more interested in collaborating with suppliers on solutions. Some of the best content we get from our data collection are solutions, you know, proposed uh points that suppliers make that point right to the precise action uh, that needs to be addressed, uh, ideas for how to do things better. And, but, but that, all that is part of a, you know, fostering the kind of trust building that's been lacking. The trust in, in our industry has been lacking and we need that safe space to rebuild that trust and, and, and restart more collaborative relationships. Yeah. It's interesting because Jesse, I don't know if it, if it, if um, what you think about this, but it reminds me we were having a conversation earlier this week, which it was a recording for the podcast, but it, we have a supplier and the brand on the show together, and they are both smaller, and I kind of asked the supplier like kind of what he thought had made this partnership possible. And he said, um, you know, that for him, basically, it came down to size, that this was a smaller customer that was not too different in size from, you know, the size of this supplier. And that um, and that that meant that they sort of entered at the table, they entered the discussion on more equal footing. And so I asked him, I said, so do you do you think there's basically no hope? then for if you have a much larger brand and a much smaller supplier to be able to establish that trust or fear that, you know, or, or to be able to minimize that. Because this, to, to give you some context, this is a supplier who had a history of working with an extremely large brand and was trying to get away from that. And so, and he was basically like, no, there's, there's, it would just be impossible to have an open conversation. Like as long as there's such difference in size between the, 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 the 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 brand and the supplier it's impossible to have a, an open dialogue or conversation um, about you know whatever it may be and I'm curious when you hear that what what do you think well yeah I mean I mentioned the power differential a, a while back and, and that is is a problem and it's interesting because one of my students several years ago was um, in our uh, the University of Delaware, where I was, where I was a faculty member, had a graduate program on socially responsible and sustainable apparel business. It was taught all online, and you know it's a great program. And this one woman was um, was a great designer, and she was going through our program. And she'd take a class every semester, and she would she was building out her ethical fashion brand. And it was so interesting to go through that process with her through the various courses that that she she were t was taking from us, and to understand that very different of experience of a startup brand trying to 
to be a sustainable and responsible brand because, you know, everything has been so much top driven and demand, you know, the, the, you know, you have to do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm big buyer. And if you want my business, you have to do this. Well, here was little buyer who had no history, who had, you know, was just trying to get some space in a factory and also trying to do so with some conditions around the workplace, uh, you know, in terms of how, how workers were treated. And, you know, she was discovering just how, and, and we, as a, as a result, were discovering just how difficult that was and how different it was to, to come at that relationship um, in that different way. But, you know, it's also interesting to, uh, you know, I have heard so many people over, over the years talk about, oh, but we have great relationships with our suppliers. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, and I, and, and yet on the other side, I'll hear a supplier who's been working with a, a brand for 30 years and say, there is no relationship. And, and I think part of the problem here is that how we think about relationships is a little bit different. I think, you know, maybe as, as individuals in a company, we do have great relationships with suppliers and with that point of contact that, you know, we, we communicate with daily, but what we don't have is a business relationship that's great. And that, that, that bigger institution that surrounds that person as an individual doesn't support what they want to do or what they would like to do for this true friend. You know, I mean, if you just ever sit, you know, if you're at a, at a trade show like in China or something and you're at the hotel adjacent and at breakfast, you know, there's always these buyer supplier breakfast meetings going on. And, you know, yeah, they know where the, the supplier's kids are in college. They, you know, they, they know all this personal stuff and it's a great relationship. But then when it comes down to the nitty gritty of why something happens, you know, there's not that great business relationship. So I think we have to keep that in perspective and the personal relationships and business relationships can be really different. And, and the, the key to those business relationships is having the right structures and expectations in place for, for personal operation. And so, you know, by the data we're giving and the, and the kind of conscious thinking about, you know, what are we doing to enable those individuals to, to not only be nice to, to suppliers, but to, engage in business that's respectful and, and fair. Um, I think that the data can help do that and putting in those systems can help address that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I do believe that management systems are a key to how you do this. So, because what, if, you know, what gets measured gets managed and things like that. And we do see, for example, a, a company, a brand that, um, we identified a payment problem with a couple of years ago, you know, their payments were late. They were quite way later than the industry average. Um, Which is already late. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, not like contractually, but long. No. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But we identified that a few years ago and, and in looking at that, you know, honest feedback from the suppliers that were fed in through our system, you know, that they were able to share because it pointed right to a process issue uh, and, and very clearly something that they could address. And, and that's been addressed. Those the, the late payments have been reduced a lot. The, the lateness of the payments have been dramatically reduced. And so I think, you know, when we set up the right structures and systems in a big company, that's what's going to allow that, um, 
those that true partnership to develop you know it's it's really it starts from the top of the company um, and it filters down through systems and processes what you shared Masa reminded me my experiences a few years ago back to Shanghai I was um, the merchandising manager in in Shanghai, uh, we were the representative office for brands. It's a big group. It's a big company. So it's very interesting for you, for me to hear you say some people from brands said, oh, we have a great relationship with our suppliers. Because back then, uh, the buyers, usually twice a year, they, will, uh, they would come to China to meet the suppliers. And the suppliers were very nice. Because they said uh, <laughs> clients, you know, so they were exactly. really nice. So you need to go out for great they, dinners. <laughs> yeah, those suppliers were not in Shanghai. They were actually a bit far, at least a few hours of train or or a driving. But they were sent their driver to go to the airport of Shanghai to pick up those uh, buyers and and drive them to either the hotel, either to the location of the factory, and then do the tour like for two to three days. So every day, uh, nice restaurants, uh, nice talk, everything. If you look from outside, everything appears very smooth, nice, uh, friendly. But every time when the buyers left or when the when those big meetings finish we knew as a purchasing team we knew oh it's our hard time because that is the moment the suppliers will tell us we can't do this price and that is the moment we will receive great pressure from buyers team to say you have to do this price and that is uh, interesting because you can see even in a in a big company you don't have the same, people are not always on the same page to share the same feeling about uh, relationship or about the purchasing practice. We knew, living in China, we know that price is not reasonable, but we don't have, you know, you know, we were in the same company. So we're supposed to really work with each other instead of going against each other. And the, 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 the culture of the company doesn't support this idea. So eventually all the pressure just, push down to the purchasing team and well, then become a headache. And that's, a, I think, again, the beauty of data and, and even like the scoring and rating we do, because it starts to have, you can start to have conversations in the company that you didn't have before. It starts to be a, a mechanism to break down those silos, you know, that, that, you know, one group working on this and having these ideas, you know, one group working on this and having a completely different set of ideas. But with data and kind of some relative scoring, you can start to have some different conversations. I mean, some of the companies that, subscribe with better buying um you know we 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 give them all the data not the data but the results of each question related to an industry benchmark but we also roll up our better buying scores into category scores and an overall score and so some of those category scores are kind of aligned with functional areas of work in the company and so so the the, the subscriber will go out with their results to the company and you'll see the the sourcing people say, well, how come, you know, the scores in de design and development are so much better than our scores, you know, <laughs> and, and you get this little in, in, internal competition going. Actually, it, it's it's exciting to see not only the the way that the the scoring uh, compels action within the company. Um, in different functional areas, but how also that scoring against an industry benchmark 
um, compels that kind of the race to the top that we're really trying to go for. Because, you know, if if a company sees that they're behind the industry benchmark, you know, or being having worse purchasing practices in certain areas than the industry on a whole, which we know are, you know, in some cases pretty bad (laughs) anyway, um, then that's that's compelling action. And that's exactly what we want to see. And and it's exciting. So I have to be honest, the skeptic in me, no, 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 let me start with the optimist in me. The optimist in me would like to believe the scenario you're describing, which is that if brands knew and understood how they were performing and also how they were performing relative to other brands, that there would be this sort of intrinsic motivation to change. But the skeptic in me doesn't quite believe that. Maybe I give a, I give a little bit of context, but when I first started writing or talking about my experience as a factory manager, I got a lot of, mm, I guess, comments or inquiries or feedback from people who said, oh yeah, and this is why training is so important. We have to train people in brands so that they understand the consequences of their actions on their suppliers. And I was kind of like, yeah, that would be better if people on the, you know, other end of this relationship understood how their actions impacted their business partners. And I did often feel that the person to the person on the other end, I was just a number in a spreadsheet, as opposed to a human being with staff to pay. But at the same time, I was kind of like, but training has its limits, because you know, there are all these internal rules and procedures. And it kind of, I think, goes back to one of your earlier points, Marsha, about, I mean, I have yet to meet somebody really in any company, whether brand or supplier, who wakes up and says, oh, I know what I want to do today. I want to like make life really difficult for somebody else, you know, or I want to screw someone over. I mean, (laughs) again, call me naive, but I, I don't think that that's the case. And so then that kind of then is like, well, okay, so maybe training and awareness would be good. But even then, there's something sort of that keeps there are procedures or rules or, you know, whatever it might be that keeps individual employees from maybe once they then understand the consequences of their choices or actions on their on their partners, that keeps them from then maybe being able to act or behave or make choices that they would want to make. And then that then takes me to thinking about shareholders and to thinking about how companies are incorporated and ultimately like, you know, these rules and procedures that govern decision-making within a brand are designed to benefit uh, shareholders. And so I'm curious what you think about that and whether you think like, do you see scope for for the data that Better Buying collects to ultimately influence um, shareholders? Because, and, and is that what it would take to sort of change the way some of these companies operate? I, I don't know. There's so much there that I want to comment on. Um, but, <laughs> and let me go to the training first, because the training is important. Awareness raising is important and it has limits. And I think back to back when I was first starting 
teaching as a professor and I was teaching about global production and workplace conditions and the issues that were coming up. And that was back when the issues were just coming up and we were recognizing, oh, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what's going on out there? And there was no, there were no CSR programs yet. There were no codes of conduct yet. There was no action like that. And I would raise these issues to my students and they would be really interested and they'd be really disturbed. And then they would be, oh, I think I'm going to change majors because there are all these problems in this industry and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to be associated with it. Or they would be, oh, there are all these problems in this industry and I don't know what I can possibly do about it. So I'm just going to try to forget I ever heard this. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think one of the consulting jobs we did several years ago was to build out a training program about purchasing practices and, and in the context of the broader, you know, CSR and sustainability agenda for this program. And, and I understood that it was implemented throughout their company with every person in that company getting that training. It would have raised that awareness about how what you do on a day to day business can impact workplace conditions through through the pressure on suppliers. And later on, we were doing a, another consulting job with a company that had business with this first one. And, you know, something came up that it was absolutely clear that training had not had the impact that we would want in terms of changing that behavior. But, it, you know, it was it was never put in place with changes to the rules and the and the uh, goals of the company surrounding them. So I, I think what could happen is that the you broadly train within a company about you know purchasing practices and the impacts day to day action can have. And a lot of times there's already a little bit of that awareness, especially those on the front line who are who are talking with suppliers more on a daily basis. They're hearing that, but they're just not empowered to do anything about it. And I actually think it could be more depressing and bad for employee morale to to know they're creating problems and there's nothing they can do about it because they've got to meet their margins. And so, you know, going to back to the board, you know, we do think there is, there is financial risks to the, to the companies, to brands and retailers with bad purchasing practices. There's all kinds of operational inefficiencies. And there's reason to think about at the C-suite and the board level, how do we do our business and how do we do it in ways that um, don't trash our supply chains, but also don't put us at risk at, you know, of a lot of the negative impacts that 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 pressure, you know, on our supply chains can have. So I th we think there's room there. We think there must be room there. And, you know, we'll be at Better Buying kind of be trying to tailor our data and our storytelling to hit that 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 C-suite level, board level um, uh, influencer, because it, it is very influential. Without that top-down um, agreement that this is not the way we're going to do business, and this is the way we're going to do business, then it's going to be it's going to be hard that, that that you'll put employees, you know, at odds between their values and what they have to do for the companies. It makes me because there's a lot of movement now, also, or it seems like momentum around. Uh, like ESG investments and portfolios and do you think better better buying data will ever be used as a 
as a screening tool for for identifying which which kind of companies are quote unquote sustainable to be invested in? I think it should be. It absolutely should yeah. be um, because uh, this is about supply chain governance and and how mm-hmm. you know and and the impacts of that way you run your business. So you know we're looking closely and thinking about you know do we need to fine tune differently? But uh, yeah, it it should be. We have had mm-hmm. other. Um, organizations ask us about that alignment too. And, and some increasingly, some companies are starting to share a little bit about what they do with, with better buying with others. So that they've been slow to do that, but I think there's more uh, movement in that area than ever before to show that your business isn't putting increased risk on your company because of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it's, it's such a tough case to make, because on the one hand, like it really de- depends, it depends a lot, I think, on how you define risk. Because on the one hand, the way that we've gotten to the state of affairs or the way of business that we have now, in some ways, people, a lot of people would justify it by saying, well, it's been a way of minimizing our risks. We have less inventory on our books. We have less, you know, by as a brand, by outsourcing our production, we have fewer people on our payroll. We, you know, don't have to front the cost of production. And so, and so it's interesting because this word risk, I think, can mean a lot of different things to different people in the room. And on the one hand, it's a word that can be used to explain how we got what we have now. And on the other hand, it could be used as a word to refute the system that we have now and to say, okay, you know, sure, you don't have inventory on your books and sure, you're not fronting the cost of production and sure, you don't have people on your payroll. However, it's probably making your supply chain a lot longer Um, you know, because subsequently every party is pushing the risk down to someone else because, because there's no sharing of it. Right. So the only way to cope with it is to, is to pass it down to someone else. And so, you know, your supply chains are getting a lot longer. Your lead times are probably getting longer. And, you know, if you were able to, if you were able to share that risk, you might in the short term lead to having more inventory on your books, but at the same time, you know, from a sort of like systems level perspective, you'd probably have a lot less waste and you'd probably have a much shorter supply chain. And you'd probably also be able to produce based on forecasts that aren't looking out quite as far, which means that they're more likely to be accurate. Um, And when they're more likely to be accurate, well, then that's less risk for everyone, you know? And your quality quality is going to better and you're, you're going to not risk uh, delayed shipments and, you know, no, no merchandise in your story. And you're not going to risk that big blow up story about forced labor in your supply chain. And you probably have a real partnership with suppliers. So your supply chain or your supply network is more resilient. Yeah, for instance, exactly. during the COVID. Because how many supply chains, due to the actions and the cancellations, just have massive holes in them now? That you know, because yeah. suppliers have gone out of business, and so where now, now with the recovery, you're trying to go back and okay, who's my supplier for this? Oh, they don't exist anymore. You know, well, yeah. you know that's a problem too. So uh, yeah, you've got to have that that supply chain that can that can be ready to serve. And, and the way to do that is with that part partnering approach to a, a truly collaborative, true partnership with suppliers that are 
you know, bound together with uh, shared goals. With, Codependent. Exactly. Yeah. In, a, in a way, yeah, because, you know, really where you've set shared goals and you're trying to um, achieve them, you've, you've together uh, determined the best path to achieve these goals, you know, and, and it's win-win and, and an effort to be fair and, and balanced for everybody. Um, I, I think that has to be the way forward. And, and yeah, I think you're right, Kim, the way we define risk, I think, uh, and just the way we, 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 we define benefit to a company is, is a problem. So we've got to, we've got to work on that, but I also don't want to always push out to the bigger, you know, more ecosystem cultural problems that are really, really hard to, to work on and make progress on quickly because then we can say, well, you know, it's, it's consumers. They don't want to pay more. It's the, it's the stock market. It's shareholders. They don't want to do this. You know, we can always point to those things that are contextual that will create delays and prevent progress, but I don't want to stick there. I don't want to stay there and, yeah. and use that as an excuse not to bring it back in and say, but what can I do today? What can we do this week? What can our company do in the next three months to actually make progress on this? Right. And I think that speaks to, I mean, change always happens sort of, I think it on multiple levels at the same time. And you maybe have a short term, a medium term and a long term. And that's okay. You know, the, <laughs> and I think it's important to, we need all, we need kind of, we need to be working on all those levels. Um, but, um, and, um, I, Jesse, I want to go, I mean, you said it would make your supply chains more resilient. And I think like, I would just add to that too, that it reminds me actually inadvertently, I've gone back to one of the questions we asked you earlier in this conversation, Marsha, which was what would it take to, to open up communication and information to have information flowing more freely from suppliers. And sure, I think you're right. I think having third parties is a really important part of that. But another, I think, avenue towards achieving that, um, which I, I think there's a place for it in parallel, is is that if there were shared risk and if, you know, the the financial risks associated with production were sh were distributed a little bit more proportionately, that that would open up communication immensely. And so then not only is your supply chain more resilient, but you've suddenly got twice the brains to think about how to how to do things and, and willing to share their expertise and their knowledge with you about you know how to how to how to change these things and anyway Marsha before we wrap up any final thoughts can we imagine supply chains that it's not just a cost to improve purchasing practices. It's a benefit and it's a business benefit to, to you and your, your supply chain. And I think we have to continue to, to help envision that, that success that can be achieved with good partnerships, true partnerships, collaborative relationships, and, and ways of working that are efficient and, you know, uh, beneficial for everybody. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. 
To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.